Hello, and welcome to Essential NOLA Cinema, a conversation between myself, Randy Mack, a New Orleans filmmaker, and a cinephile about a film they chose. I'm here with a man who needs no introduction, Mr. Harry Shearer, who delighted and surprised me with Big Charity, the 2014 documentary by Alex Kluskram about the fate of one of the oldest hospitals in the world in New Orleans' oldest hospital. It's a tragedy that unfolds in the post-Katrina aftermath. It's one of my favorite documentaries, and I am curious how and when you saw the film and what your first impression of it was. It was a very powerful setting for uh, seeing that film. I have a friend uh, who was very active in the movement to prevent the destruction, and it was the deliberate destruction of Charity Hospital that the film documents. And uh, she told me there's going to be a screening. It was a, uh, at this point, uh, film in progress. The, the, the making of it was not completed. And it was a screening at the Joy Theater on uh, Canal Street. And not only that, almost everybody else besides my friend and I maybe a couple other people at that screening were people who had worked at Charity Hospital. And this was the first time they saw their story on screen. So it was a very, very powerful, I mean, you know, you, you describe that and people might imagine, people with a highly dramatic bent might imagine that there are shrieks and cries and people talking back to the screen and all of that, which there was none of. It was a very polite audience. But as an entertainer, maybe everybody has it, but I'm certainly aware of it, that I have a sensitivity to the feeling in the room of an audience. You get that feeling when you're on stage, and whether you're looking for laughs or not, you're just feeling what the audience is vibing. And it was pretty overwhelming to, to, be, to sit in a room with people seeing their traumatic experience documented on the screen uh, for the first time. And I had a couple of notes about what could be done to maybe make the film a little better, and I shared those with the director afterwards. But I was, my main first impression was I was just knocked out by the work, by the, um, you know, a lot of stuff that, is presented to the audience as documentaries these days, leaves something to be desired. I'll, I'll pick on one that I recently saw that was hyped to me very enthusiastically by a couple people I know, called uh, The Great Hack, made, I think, in Britain. It was about a British person. She had worked for Cambridge Analytica and quit to become a whistleblower. And it was one of those documentaries where, oh my God, the camera just happens to be in the right place at the right time when all these dramatic events happen, and it's a little bit, little bit suspicious, but I suspended my suspicions until there's this scene. She has to leave London suddenly to uh, get out of town, and so we happen to be there as she's throwing clothes into a suitcase, and then the camera follows her into a cab heading for Heathrow Airport in London, except they're driving on the wrong side of the road, and there's a street sign coming by, and I freeze-framed it, and it said, New Jersey this way. <laughs> I say that only to, to point out that the, the word gets misapplied a lot, or the, the description does not get honored. Uh, by contrast, I was just overwhelmed by how rigorous the work was in Big Charity. It's uh, a situation where 
everything is being told in retrospect, except that the filmmakers managed to get some absolutely remarkable footage. The story is basically this was the legendary charity hospital that has been a charity hospital in New Orleans for over 200 years. This was the latest iteration. It was built in the 1930s when Huey Long built a bunch of charity hospitals throughout Louisiana to give quality health care to the poor and working poor. And uh, many people who later came to prominence in New Orleans would proudly claim that heritage, I'm a charity baby. And at the time of the 2005 flood, the basement of Charity Hospital flooded. And the basement contained, as the basements of many buildings of that era, all of the utility uh, infrastructure, so electric and water and gas and stuff were in the basement. So when that floods, the, the whole building just goes... I'm not working anymore. And the story it tells is of the people who worked at that hospital, along with some National Guard people coming in within days to clean it up. Not only to clean it up, but to sterilize it and get it ready to go back into operation as a working hospital at a time when the city was in a major public health emergency. And the state of Louisiana, which had come to be the... uh, supervisor of the hospital when the Sisters of Mercy turned it over to LSU to operate, Governor Blanco decided or announced the hospital will not reopen. No explanation. And then the the remarkable piece of footage that I'm referring to is footage of people not seen going through the hospital, it's closed, and turning on faucets in bathrooms up and down the hospital to reflood it. It's stunning, and it's it's a stunning story, and the, the story goes on to detail why LSU had reason not to want to reopen charity and reason to instead want what it ultimately got, a uh, suburban-style medical campus just a few blocks away, uh, leaving the city without a, a working hospital for the poor for the 10 years it took t- for all that to happen. The interviewing style is so careful and so unaggressive that they got the head of the LSU hospital system at that point sitting at his desk, you know, big office, great window view, Rolex on his wrist, and he says, you know, and you know, the word charity has kind of gotten a stigma. And I'm thinking of all those people who were proud charity babies you know, it was anything but a stigma. And I told my friend, uh, you know, we should start a movement to rename the, the new hospital Stigma Hospital. <laughs> Had I come to this a little bit sooner, I really wanted when they opened the new facility to uh, get a group of people down there and surround it and put up yellow crime scene tape because it was a crime. It was it was criminal activity. Anyway, it's such a powerful story. It's such a understated The filmmaker has the confidence in his story to let it tell itself without having to hype it or push it or shove it in your face in any way. It shoves itself in your face just fine. And, you know, to know that it was done by a a guy who was, you know, in his early 20s and had that intelligence, confidence, and self-discipline, it it really amazed me as a piece of work. Yeah, uh, same here. I I found out about the project during its Kickstarter phase. Mm -hmm. I backed it, got my uh, DVD and my postcard and everything. And 
I've been living in New Orleans since 2006. I uh, got here into the aftermath. And mm. one of the first things I was hearing about was the lack of mental health care. Mm -hmm. Actually, on the calendar, I was about four weeks after the murder-suicide of, of Zach and Addie, who turned out were former tenants of the apartment I lived in down in uh, the lower French Quarter. And mm. it was one of those things where I had moved from Los Angeles where everyone, I'd assumed that normally just snap back like a rubber band mm. you know with all the resources the country flaunts on tv all the time mm -hmm. of course they're just going to send everything they can to just rebuild the city and it was out of the news cycle for so long that when i got down here uh i guess it was about 15 months later it was like the flood had happened yesterday mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and especially psychologically and emotionally the rawness of it was palpable and, and, and just city-defining. I mean, it, it was edge-to-edge -edge in, in terms of its traumatization of the citizenry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when I went into the theater for the premiere of Big Charity, I was, I was thinking I was going to learn a lot about the hospital system and the relationship with Baton Rouge, which has always been a huge question mark in my head mm -hmm. about how New Orleans survives in this state the way it does. Mm. And I was completely blindsided by the Katrina footage and the sheer amount of visceral trauma flying off of the screen. I mean, the Katrina section is only, this was shocking to me to, to figure out on my rewatch, it's only the first 23 minutes of the film. I remembered it as being so much more, but that footage is so immersive and there's so many kind of escalating injustices mm -hmm. that spill out over the course of that the fact that charities are right across the street from the Tulane Medical Center which was evacuated on day one and they left everyone in charity just to rot as they watched the evacuation happen out the window waving banners they were just left behind mm -hmm. how does that happen like who allows that to happen what who 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 was flying those traps like Somebody must have said, we should go over there, and then somebody must have stopped them. Is the only thing I can imagine. And then who were those people? But then that injustice barely has time to fester because suddenly there's the fact that they had to get evacuated by the forestry department four or five days later. <laughs> They're carrying all the people up the stairs and stuff. And then they finally get out. They finally rehabilitate the hospital. They, they bring in all of the new equipment. They pump all the flood water out and it's back and then and then the real injustice comes in and it's just kind of overwhelming mm -hmm. lsu is i don't understand how there weren't arrests made it seems so obviously flagrantly criminal i i where was the where was the justice you have to uh i think see lsu in some context i had made a documentary that came out four years before this one the big uneasy about the flood and why it happened and one of the main people who was interviewed for the film, who was one of the leaders of the two different forensic investigations into the 2005 flood, he was the head of the LSU Hurricane Center at the time. And both he and the heads of the other investigation who were housed at UC Berkeley came to remarkably similar conclusions, even though they approached it very differently. And the conclusions that stand out were that uh, the hurricane protection system, which was started construction in 1965 after another hurricane of roughly similar size, 45 years later or 40 years later, hadn't been completed as of yet, had major engineering problems, and uh, the agency that built it, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, ignored warnings from both inside and outside of its own agency that it was making consequential mistakes in the way it was designing and uh, supervising the construction of that hurricane protection system. 
And LSU's reaction was to fire Ivor Van Heerden, the head of the Hurricane Center, and close down the LSU Hurricane Center. He later won a lawsuit for unlawful dismissal, but the Hurricane Center remained shut. And LSU's behavior indicated that its main objective was to remain on good relations with the United States Army Corps of Engineers and with the federal government as a whole because they get a lot of money out of the feds. So that was the background I had in my mind as I watched the actions of LSU in big charity. It seemed not at all out of character for that institution, and it did seem to play out the dichotomy between the way Baton Rouge looks at the world and the way New Orleans inhabits the world in a very stark and, of course, catastrophically harmful manner. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's an apathy toward human life and suffering that is, it's essentially like they're just above the law. Well, yeah, and it's also, it's shocking to see a state institution founded as an educational institution behaving in the most crassly corporate manner. Right. And don't they have a, a responsibility Aren't they a public institution that is accountable to the people? Yeah. But they're clearly not accountable. Yeah. I mean, it, that's that's the thing. It's so amazing. Yeah. The, the fact they were running that hospital at all was kind of, that was a little weird, but I mean, it, they're a public institution. They have a lot of resources. Okay. It, it, it makes a little bit of sense on paper since they already have a set of hospitals there and have administration in place who know what they're doing hypothetically, but the, the mission of the hospital is to serve the people. It was the only mental health facility in the city mm-hmm. in a time where mental health care was of absolute, you know, imperative and they removed it. And then like the suicide rate goes through the roof. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's they have blood on their hands is what I'm saying. Yeah. One thing that I noted in that regard was 2006 and the summer of 2006, One of the first big conventions to come back to New Orleans was the American Psychological Association. And uh, they met at the convention center, and they had their attendees during the two weeks that the convention was in and around town do uh, some public service in the community. And what was the public service that the American Psychological Association attendees did? They helped build houses at Habitat for Humanity. Oh. Now, there's a mental health crisis going on. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of expertise to help out at Habitat, but it, uh, you know, mental health counseling does take some expertise. They have the expertise, and they don't give a fuck. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That reminds me of that uh, Ben Affleck's commentary track to the movie Armageddon, where he asked Michael Bay, wouldn't it be just easier to train astronauts to drill instead of train drillers to be astronauts? <laughs> <laughs> and you just told them to shut the fuck up. Actually, it's funny because I was going to ask about the comedy. It, there's so much outrage. There's so much to be outraged about. And mm-hmm. it's so hard to channel it productively. And you are uh, so good at the political, um, spinning the political stuff in a way that's that's very palpable. Uh, palpable, digestible. It's, 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 uh, and you're still, I mean, the Nixon tapes and the Le show, and it seems like there's a, a sharpness, but I was wondering if you had advice as to like, do you think there's a, a solution to something, a case like this LSU on, uh, you know, murdering charity like this is it's, it's a single contained um, action that could be hypothetically dramatized or, satirized or something in a way that could bring 
broader awareness. I know that the moment is past and everything, but as a hypothetical, it seems like... Well, it's a good learning you know, experience because those guys did such a fine job in making the documentary, and I, I know this experience well because I had much the same experience with mine. Getting other media to pay attention to the story. You know, I don't recall even a lot of attention. I think maybe Gambit wrote a nice piece about a big charity, but I don't recall the TV stations in town or uh, the then two newspapers paying any attention to it, or at least my experience with The Big Uneasy, I had the very same experience. I timed the making of it and the release of it uh, to coincide with the fifth anniversary because I knew that all the major media would be swarming back into town and it would be like, oh, look what's been discovered in the meantime. There's a whole new layer to this story. And instead it was, look how good our coverage was five years ago, congratulating themselves on Anderson Cooper shaking his finger in the face of Mary Landrieu. And I'd been in and around journalism enough to recognize this phenomenon, which is, um, I call it a template that the New York Times internally calls it a narrative. Producers and editors get a first glimpse of a story, and that forms their view, their frame for the story. And after that, the only reporting that they're interested in is people giving quotes about that view of the story. If somebody, especially somebody outside the media framework, comes in with whole new reportage, like Big Charity did, uh, they not only don't welcome it, they seem to collude in shunning it. They come up with a take and then basically just report to support the take. Yes. Yeah, take would be the, the modern word for it. There's a great story by a really good journalist, Peter Moss, uh, used to write for The New Yorker. Now I think he writes for The Intercept. And this was... I think this was a New Yorker story about the toppling of the Saddam Hussein statue in Baghdad in 2004. And he was in Baghdad, and he says, you know, there were like maybe 40 or 50 Iraqis in that square, Tahrir Square. Basically, this was an American operation, and the photographers and the journalists in the square, uh, the photographers particularly, were saying, let us turn around and show you how few people are here and how many of them are Americans. And the producers and editors were saying, what I'm seeing on CNN is the toppling of the statue and some Iraqis there. That's the story I want. And Moss is too good a reporter to fake that. And I had a very similar experience when I was a kid working at Newsweek. So the fact that it remains a practice or a habit in American journalism is not surprising but disappointing. And so when you do a piece like Big Charity... I mean, what I did was basically put the film under my arm and, and get it booked personally at theaters around the country and come show up for the premiere of the showing so that I could get local newspaper coverage of the story because I couldn't get national. You know, New Orleans suffered at least doubly, if not triply, because the idea that that event was, oh, well, natural disaster, living in the wrong place. No, victims of borderline sinister criminality, at least dramatic malfeasance and misfeasance by an agency of the federal government would cast that story in an entirely different light. And national coverage of it would change people's understanding of it. There's a quote from the, one of the co-authors of the Berkeley study that if the hurricane protection system had been built properly, the worst Katrina would have 
inflicted on New Orleans is, quote, wet ankles, unquote. That would dramatically have changed what the federal government would e- was either prepared to or would be constrained by public opinion to do to deal with the aftermath. So um, the media shunning that part of the story had really serious consequences for the city and for the people of the city. And so I would recommend anybody who sets out to do a, a piece of investigative or uh, explanatory work on, on the level of big charity, have it in mind that the completion of the movie is halfway to job done. <laughs> yeah. And the other half is getting people to know about the story, ideally see the movie, but even if they just read about the movie, read the the point of the movie, the story that the movie is telling, and are thereby either, you know, ideally motivated to go see the movie, but at least it changes their view of the of the event. That's the other half. And as hard as it is to make a documentary, and it's ridiculously hard if you do it right and don't put a New Jersey street sign in on the road to Heathrow in London, um, as hard as it is to make a documentary, it's harder still to get it the attention it deserves if it's telling the other half of a story which people thought they knew. Yeah, but before I was a filmmaker, I was a journalist. I cut my teeth in New England on the Phoenix. I have a shelf of investigative journalism awards. Mm. And it's a, uh, I mean, it was the mid-90s and it was deregulation and, uh, you know, the Clinton era Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the big boys were starting to go in, but there were still free weeklies in almost every minor city in, in the tri-state area and so forth. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, um, getting the media's attention is, you know, for as long as there's been mass media, there's always been a sort of trick to it. It's sort of knowing somebody, knowing how to speak the language, and knowing how to present the story in a way. Mm-hmm. But um, in the modern era with the consolidation and and New Orleans's media in particular is so idiosyncratic. And it, it, I just, I, every time I see the local TV stations, I, I just feel like they're on a different plane of reality than anything else I see going on in the city. Printed media here is a little bit better, but with only one, you know, kind of semi-newspaper, it's, I, I wonder if the move for a, a documentarian would be to go to a national outlet like the New Yorker or find a personal angle or try to well man I I hired a New York PR guy to handle the big uneasy I had exactly that thought I hired a guy who uh, also represented Katie Couric who at the time was anchoring the CBS Evening News so I thought and he ended up apologizing to me didn't return any of the huge fee I paid him New York level fee couldn't move the needle at all. I got nothing except one little shot on Morning Joe. I was down right by uh, what, what is now Mardi Gras World. And that was it, you know. Uh, nothing on the network news, nothing on the morning shows aside from that. Nothing in the New Yorker, nothing in the New York Times, nothing in the New York anything. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, arguably, all right, let's keep it in perspective, but I'm a, a little bit of a celebrity. I'm a known person, you know. There's a, there's a, there's a little hook there, you know. Guy from The Simpsons t- makes a documentary. What's that about? None of it. So I found it inexpressibly hard, and that's why I was so full of admiration for the, this team that n- knowing exactly the nature of the morass that they had walked into, I admired them 
tremendously for carrying this through, for working really hard, for making, you know, I saw the work they were doing towards the latter half of framing the movie and, and massaging the parts and mm. making every part speak as as clearly as possible. I, I thought they did an amazing job. No, I agree. There's not an ounce of fat on that film. It's got 66-minute running time, and every moment of it is vital and and surprising. It's, it's really a, a stunning piece of work. As I dug through the old Kickstarter, Alex and his team did a great job of bringing the charity employees, the doctors, nurses, uh, tech crew, and, and assistants and stuff, were instrumental in keeping the film alive after its premiere mm. at the, the film festival. Mm. Um, the Joy Theater seems to have been helping him from from jump, it sounds like, because the Joy programmed like big charity nights routinely for at least four or five years after the, mm. the festival premiere. Um, and they were apparently just sold out every time, which is really reassuring. I mean, it's, it's a huge success story in, in a sense. They faced the same thing, though, that, that I did, except I faced it on a national level. They faced it on a local level. I bet if you stop a New Orleanian in the street today and ask him what happened to Charity Hospital, oh, it got flooded. Yeah, I've had people tell me that. They say, oh, no, everything was damaged or the, the buildings needs to be torn down or, yeah. or whatever. Information in this town, it's just – when you were telling me about the apathy of the national outlets, I mean, especially Anderson Cooper really made a reputation out of you know the, the empathetic anchor, the guy who stayed the longest in the city and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. I mean, but – so – Here's a question. So you've been a, a, such a close follower of media for so long. Do you think it's gotten worse since the, you know, the deregulation and consolidation of media ownership? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to be able to say I think it got worse starting in the, in the mid-1970s when the broadcasting organizations stopped being freestanding organizations and started being subsidiaries of larger corporations. You know, uh, when CBS was just CBS and what they did was they had TV stations and radio stations and they put stuff on the air, their behavior was very different from when they became part of a larger conglomerate like Viacom. NBC, I think it happened to them even sooner, although they were always part of a bigger company. And ABC was pretty much ABC until the 90s when uh, Capital Cities swallowed it. Um, and the way I would describe it is, you know, New York Times is an exception. And I think there's been a little heavying up in the last year or two, but basically they, they're they like Potemkin news organizations, you know. Uh, the anchor desk looks as impressive as usual. My favorite anecdote about how this has worked is a couple, a few years ago, I was watching Meet the Press one Sunday morning, and David Gregory was anchoring it at the time. And he said, we have a breaking news story this morning in uh, Pakistan, and for the latest, we go to NBC's chief foreign correspondent, Richard Engel, reporting today from London. Okay. <laughs> you know, because you can see Pakistan from there. <laughs> now, the only untruth in that sentence was the word chief, because he really meant only. Now, when I was a kid, I had in my memory the names, because I was a news junkie, the names of the CBS bureau chiefs, in Rome, in Paris, in Moscow, in London, in Tokyo, you know, those things don't exist anymore. There's one person that flies around. In the 90s and the 2000s, 
even the purpose of having a, a correspondent in other cities became antiquated because if there was a big enough story, they didn't cover it. The anchor flew in and asked a couple cab drivers what was the mood and then did a report from the big story. So From outside the airport. Yeah, the- so you were, you were a correspondent who got big-footed whenever there was a chance to get on the air. And I think that was really the end of that system. Now, of course, they don't fly the uh, anchor in anymore, but they'll fly, you know, one or two people who are out there, like Richard Engel, who was, you know, wherever he was. But what that meant was his contribution was he could do what I could do, read the Internet about what was happening in Pakistan and say it out loud. Uh, That's Potemkin News Organization. I mean, NBC is, I think, particularly bad. They had an anchor who was a proven public liar. Oh, those those shots, when they came out our helicopter as we were landing in Iraq, it was frightening. They they were never shot at. Brian Williams was never shot at. Uh His punishment was six months off the air, which he later described as torture. This is at a time when there's real torture going on at the hands of the United States government, but being off the air was his equivalent. And now he's anchoring, you know, a nightly newscast for the same organization, although not on the network, on the cable system. And they have, as does CNN, as a, a um, analyst, former intelligence director, who lied under oath to the Senate. So they've got a lying anchor and a lying <laughs> analyst. Yeah. I don't say this a lot in public anymore because, you know, you don't want to get conflated with Donald Trump's critique of the media. So, yeah, uh, it's it ain't what it used to be. How do you feel about AP and Reuters? I'm impressed with AP. I think AP realized that their bread and butter, which had been a straight, down-the-middle, unadventurous writing down of what happened yesterday in as many locations as possible, was being usurped and their main customer base was drying up, that is to say local newspapers which wanted international and national coverage. And they heavied up on investigations as, a, as an alternative course. I haven't seen that change at Reuters. Reuters seems to still be doing the old job of, uh, you know, counting the uh, bodies every day. And I, I think it's a woman that runs AP now, and I think she's the person who sort of is steering it in a slightly different direction, which... I mean, I, I'm amazed. I think I've seen this year between half a dozen and a dozen stories on AP that are the result of long-range investigations and deep dives, and that was never part of the AP recipe before. Oh, good. I'm glad somebody's stepping into the gap. Yeah. When uh, the Brian Williams thing went down, people were shocked, I guess, for the five minutes they were paying attention. I said, TV news is barely news at all. TV news is, is kind of entertainment, and anchors are not journalists. So mm-hmm. it's, I, it's amazing this hasn't happened earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a matter of time. You know? And I think it happened, the, oh, my God, he was lying reaction by the network was as fake as the rest of it because he was lying. He was going on Letterman, and he was going on uh, Jay Leno, and he was going on these shows because the network wanted to young up the demographic of the evening news. Right, exactly. He wasn't doing that, you know, because he wanted to be more famous. I th- well, he may have been, but I think he was doing it with the network's blessings because, you know, if they could get a couple of younger viewers to watch the news. Yeah, exactly. That's why they hired him in the first place. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. And, and it's so crazy because I remember growing up watching the Cronkite news during the Vietnam War, 
And, you know, I was in my teens and early 20s. And the main sponsors at the time were Geritol and uh, Just for Men Hair Coloring. So it's always been older people that watch the news. You know, this thing of, why can't we get the kids to watch the news? Because they're kids. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to digest all this in the, in the context of big charity. There's, We're recording this on the weekend of May 31st when there's been rioting in how many dozen major cities right now over the Floyd murder? I haven't I haven't seen any news of it in New Orleans. Have I missed something? No, no rioting here. Nope. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been peaceful, and there's been a... Most of what I've been seeing passed around is don't take the bait. Mm-hmm. A lot of ways to say it coming from a lot of voices, but essentially the feeling is... We can, you know, we can be outraged. We need to stand together. And everyone, New Orleans loves its conspiracies, of course. And so the the everyone seems to be protesting with a, a wary eye on young white outsiders, which is mm-hmm. interesting because mm-hmm. it sort of there's an interesting parallel between the young white outsiders who have been gentrifying the city since Katrina, and now these young white outsiders who are instigating the riots. It almost feels like there's a some kind of great satire to be made about this moment with regard to that about the about the YWOs <laughs> yes yeah it it and um but yeah it's been peaceful here and the the NOPD have been they you know they haven't been showing up in paramilitary gear or anything the protests seem to be going about every 4 or 5 hours it was like one at noon one at 6 one at 9 kind of and i don't know if the attendance is remaining steady or different kind of sub-factions are choosing which ones to attend. They're all hosted by various nonprofits, but the Take Them Down uh, Foundation, who was a big voice in the removal of the Confederate statues, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has a lot of existing credibility. And so I know their mm-hmm. protests were particularly well attended. I'm put in mind at this moment, I mean, this feels, the, the febrile nature of the, the country at the moment feels so much like 1968. It's frightening and saddening. But I'm put in mind of discussions that I would have with friends about anti-war demonstrations. And uh, this gets back to how do you get this message, whether it's from a documentary or from a demonstration or such, across. The problem that I thought demonstrations faced then, and I think we're seeing it again, is it has a impact. It has an impact when people take to the streets and, and protest. It's undeniable. But as a long-running tactic, it has very rapidly diminishing returns because of the danger of being taken over either by police misbehavior, oh my God, I'm shocked, or by uh, protester misbehavior, quote protester, uh, interloper behavior, whatever you want to call it, because it's so easy for media to shift their gaze from the thing you're protesting against, whether it's a hideous war or a murder in in plain view by a man in blue, to, oh, those damned people in the streets, or those nutty people in the streets. And they love to do that. They love to change the focus. It's more visual. You know, how many times can you rerun the George Floyd tape? But, you know, protesters and cops, they're making new video for you every day. Reminds me of uh, Los Angeles 92. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, you have to think like TV news producers think, do we have new video? Well, 
being out in the street demonstrating gives you new video every day. That's the gift you're giving to them. You, as an organizer, think the deal is, okay, I'm giving you new video every day. You give me coverage of my issue. But that quickly gets transmogrified into something else. Yeah, it gets turned into, why are these poor people burning their own businesses or whatever yeah, the yeah, you know yeah. the upper class yeah. take on it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. If it bleeds, it leads mm-hmm. is still the defining mantra. That's the whole thing about deregulation and consolidation of media companies is that when you're supposed to be practicing journalism, which is an ethos, but if you're really practicing capitalism and just going for ratings and advertising dollars and so forth, then it's more than just a misservice. It's a deception on the public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, just like LSU. Yeah. I started my life, my adult life, working in uh, an advertising agency just as a lark during two summers between uh, years in uh, college. And, I mean, I had advertising jingles in my head for my child. I still do. I ran into Al Jardine in New Orleans uh, a couple months ago, and we were like doing almost a competition with each other. Who remembered more stupid advertising jingles from childhood? And now I've gotten to the point of uh, very influenced by reading Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, which is really good. And is about the 125-year history of advertisers just trying harder and harder and harder and harder and harder to hijack our attention. It did occur to me at one point, I was I spent a lot of time in England recently. The thing you hear in Britain a lot is, why are Americans so stupid? <laughs> and, you know, I don't think there is any such thing. I think people are basically the same. I think they get acculturated differently. That's why people in New Orleans are most sociable and all sorts of other things. They're not different people. They're just acculturated differently. So I thought, boy, I would love to do a big macro study where you somehow figure out how many minutes of advertising people in different countries are exposed to and compare that to a group of people from each of these countries, their performance on a general knowledge test. My hypothesis being that advertising colonizes parts of your brain that would otherwise be used for storing useful information. That's absolutely true, I think. Yeah, I, I call them catalog heads. There's a certain kind of person who's, they all they know is like the price of everything and like the different colors a car might come in or whatever. They, you know, they know the make and models of every vehicle that drives down the street that they, mm-hmm. they can't tell you who their state senators are. Yeah, or they know all the, the minutia of baseball mm. statistics going back. You, you reminded me of a great Dave Frischberg lyric. They know the price of everything and the value of nothing at all. <laughs> yeah. I remember that from Doonesbury way back. Yeah. That was, that was John Kerry, I think, in fact. That was, a, that was an old strip making fun of John Kerry when he was a, had come out of the war and had become a political activist. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was Doonesbury in the probably 69, 70, 71 era. <laughs> Kerry is, in one of the strips, is caught kind of passing off that quote as his own, nah. basically. Well, God bless him. Yeah, the colonization of the mind. It's a... <laughs> That's a, it's a real problem. I guess the question is, then, is this, it, how do we save the media? Force them to run as nonprofits, essentially? Well, you know, I'll answer that in, in two ways. One, I'm on the board of The Lens, and I support The Lens very strongly, and I think The Lens has done amazing work in New Orleans. They've broken at least two or three stories that have become national news, such as the uh, astroturfing of local council meetings, the example being the... Uh, 
Entergy astroturfing of the city council meeting when they were going to vote on whether to let Entergy build a new fossil fuel-fired power plant in the east of the city. So that's one model. And the other one, which I think gets more attention and, and admiration than I think it deserves, is ProPublica. Now, I may be stuck in a thing about this, but I will never forget that even 15 years ago, ProPublica had decent resources. And what they covered in the New Orleans flood was the story of Dr. Anna Powell, who was in some hospital with like seven or eight critical patients, no resources, all the, you know, all of everything fallen around her, and she has to make life or death decisions about these patients. And they excoriate her. And they get a Pulitzer, and they get a book, and they get a movie out of it. Meanwhile, the grand story of the failure of the federal government to live up to its promise to protect the city, that's nothing they're interested in. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I find that a grave stain on their journalistic reputation. I remember that. I mean, I remember that story really vividly when it came out. It was all people wanted to talk about was... Yeah, the doctors are pulling the plugs on people, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm like, okay, there's got to be context to that. Yeah, like no electricity in your building to keep the machines going. I mean, it, it, it was, to me, and I have, I have no connection with Dr. Anna Powell. I don't know her, never knew her, uh, don't know anybody who knows her. So this is not from a personal interest in, you know, that was a savaging. Yeah, and it's it's a funny thing about... People, you're talking about the attention merchants, and we now live in the attention economy and all of that. What people pay attention to is not necessarily what they should be given, because people love drama and cheap theatrics, and one person making a scene in hysterics is going to get more eyeballs than, you know, a governor or somebody reading a statement at a podium Mm -hmm. just because of the sheer entertainment value. But the whole reason that we have a nonprofit sector of the world economy and so forth is, is because there are things that are vitally important that you cannot rely on people to seek out on their own. They have to be protected, mm-hmm. which reminds me of one of the... So the Army Corps of Engineers, as your movie The Big Easy showed, is essentially legislation and liability proof, right? It's lawsuit proof. It seems to be exist in a strange kind of quasi-extra-governmental space. Yeah, Yeah, they were given immunity by a 1927 law by Congress. They have learned the lesson of being under the Defense Department, which is get an operation going in each congressional district. So your local congressman always wants to keep that going because money goes to local construction companies and contractors. Michael Grunwald, uh, who wrote a great five-part series for the Washington Post about the Army Corps at the beginning of uh, this century, like 2000, 2001, Call it. it may not be his origination, but he, he used it in peace. The Iron Triangle, mm. which is the core, the local Congress people, and the contractors. The core hasn't done its own work since it was uh, cleaned out by the Reagan administration because they wanted to make government agencies lean and mean. So they contract the work out to local or national construction companies, engineering companies. And so those companies contribute to the Congress people to keep the core funded and keep it creating projects and so forth and so on. Yeah, it's uh, and because, you know, if you need your harbor dredge, there's only one place to go. Right. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, it seems like a recipe for just 
flagrant grift, right? It's bigger than that. I mean, the core has a really great business model. Do something, and if it turns out to be really egregiously wrong, then get paid a second time to fix it. The people who got called in to build a better system after the Corps' hurricane protection system failed disastrously in 53 different locations in New Orleans was the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a monopoly model. Yeah, the people who were called in after they had been party to the destruction of the Everglades in Florida over 35, 40 years was the Army Corps of Engineers. They were called in to save the Everglades. I mean, it's crazy. You just you, you wear the black hat for a while, take it off, put on the white hat, keep getting paid. I, I'm thinking of uh, Cleavon Little kidnapping himself in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. LSU seems to exist in the same kind of quasi-governmental state that the Army Corps does. It's, it's supposed to have a public mission, and yet it, it seems to operate as a capitalistic enterprise with no consideration for the humanity that suffers under it. And at the same time, it operates with no accountability toward any higher office or, or public uh, you know, outrage. I mean, the public outrage is the only thing that could be levied against it. And even then, you know, it's, it's, um, it all feels so futile to, you know, LSU is such a kind of mammoth organization. And, it, and it, all those people wearing the, the, all the tigers hats and shirts and stuff, it's like they've got a sports franchise to, distracts people from being able to hate it because like they say oh but i support the team or i went to college there so therefore they can't be doing these terrible things it's mm-hmm. like cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance kind of it sets up yeah it's almost as if the athletic program acts as a marketing tool to protect them to generate loyalty and protect them from criticism and or accountability almost if yeah <laughs> yeah i mean I, it does point out that there's something that's become very popular in the political world since the reagan administration and uh, we just saw the latest example, the latest iteration of it with the uh, space launch yesterday, the public-private partnership, mm. which basically means letting private companies do what the government is supposed to do. And it's a result of this anti-government thing that's gone on for 30 years. Private organizations could do anything that government can do and can do it better. I haven't seen the private organizations you know, outdoing the government and getting uh, PPE to people in hospitals in this country <laughs> yep. during the pandemic. Or the tests. Yep. When uh, catastrophic brush fires break out in California every year, I'm not seeing the private companies that rush to help put them out that have better equipped trucks. I've never understood this whole anti-big government thing in the sense of uh, the way it's executed since the Reagan era seems to be expand the executive branch exponentially while reducing the actual services. Doing less. So the government's staying the same size, if not bigger. Yeah. And, you know, and the military budget hasn't shrunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's actually doing less. So how do you... I have this tongue-in-cheek mayoral campaign that uh, I pull out of the box every couple years, which is called Blow the Bridges, which is essentially dynamite all the waterways around New Orleans and become like a self-contained protectorate Mm -hmm. like Washington, D.C., you know, where you don't have to report to a state, but, you you know, you can have maybe like one congressman. Mm -hmm. But that would take Baton Rouge off the metaphorical dick. And at the same time, New Orleans could be a self-contained economy because we can let the Kenner Airport go reopen Lakefront as a commercial site. And essentially we'd have, you know, 99% of Hollywood South and the tourism industry and 
uh, so on. This is half tongue-in-cheek and half just utopian fantasy, but the idea would be that it's free to leave at any time for anybody, but if you want to move here, it's uh, like 1% of your income in a bottle of your favorite booze. Hmm. There's a public liquor supply. Well, my my fantasy was uh, a, a little less grandiose. My fantasy was that if you moved into New Orleans, if you bought a house in New Orleans or bought a, you know, rented a place but it was going to be through for through realtors so it was really about home buying that you got along with your paperwork a 10 minute uh little uh video uh that was basically your orientation video about new orleans you know here's how this city behaves how here's how we do so that you don't start calling the cops when there's a brass band marching by your fucking house and going there's noise in the street you know because we depend the city so depends on people picking up the culture and wanting to assimilate into it with no mechanism you know it just happens and fortunately it often really does happen you know Mm. we've been able to depend on that because it does happen but it would be great to kind of give people a little little kick in the ass to, to start them off you know oh definitely I, I live in the ninth ward piece of the marini where we had all the live music at mimi's shut down because of a couple of neighbors mm. who were appalled that there was bars with entertainment in the area that they moved in knowing nothing apparently the whole idea of oh i love the city i just hate the culture of it <laughs> question mark mm-hmm. it's become mm-hmm. a I don't know if this is an ongoing thing. Like I said, I'm a post-Katrina immigrant, but it feels like I hear stories like this all the time. And uh, sometimes the people eventually leave or we have a couple snowbirds in the neighborhood who only live here a few months of the year. But when they do live here, they complain. <laughs> and then... It's bizarre. You wonder what they're here for. What's your personal history with New Orleans? Uh, you mentioned you grew up in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but it seems like you've been coming here a very long time. I've been uh, coming to New Orleans since 1989. It was my first Jazz Fest. I fell in like with Jazz Fest and fell in love with New Orleans. <laughs> After probably about eight years, my wife and I decided uh, we are doing a great job of subsidizing the hotel business, but maybe <laughs> maybe we should get a place. We talked to some friends, and they had the condo experience, turnkey condo. And so we got one, and immediately, just in the day-to-dayness of being a resident, as opposed to being in a hotel, was such such, such a startling change in what day-to-day felt like. Mm. If you haven't experienced it, it's very hard to describe it, because, you know, hotel life is insulated. I remember there was some in-flight magazine that I looked at in a desperate moment on an airplane and and they had a a guide speaking of journalism yeah a guide to uh enjoying new orleans you know and uh, well if you're looking for music there is this uh music venue in the ritz carlton and if you're looking for a restaurant there's a very good restaurant in the no it wasn't the ritz carlton it was the uh, windsor court i think it was one of them anyway the whole point of the article was you don't have to leave the fucking hotel to experience new orleans yeah and then my wife is a singer and songwriter, and we had friends in to hear one of her, her latest record, a little listening party, and they were all scrunched together on a couple of couches in the, in the condo and, you know, hanging off the balcony up the stairs. And we thought, 
we know too many people. We will never be able to reciprocate all the dinners we've had if we stay in this place. We need a, a proper house. And uh, so we got one. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. No, I've never lived anywhere but the corn. So I, I'm trying to think of a way. And I keep turning my mind to is how to be creative with this outrage. You're a satirist. I mean, I consider myself fundamentally a comedy writer, even though I make narrative features. But we have a city full of artists and artisans of all kinds. And a, a, a piece of art like Big Charity does not have any humor or satire in it really at all, and other than the sort of dire gallows humor of seeing the guy with guy with the Rolex talking. <laughs> yeah, nor did nor did my documentary. I, I was very careful not to step over that line. I you know, if you if you're telling a story that contradicts a a existing narrative, I think you have to be very, very careful to go I'm not kidding around. I'm not fucking with you. This is the real shit. This is really what, what, what I've discovered. Or I didn't discover it. I discovered the people who discovered it. Or I know the people who discovered it. So I didn't want to be in the position of, well, hey, I couldn't tell whether you were joking or not when you <laughs> had that thing about the, the flood. So, no, I think that those are two rigorously separate things in my book. But, I, you know, I have the advantage that I really have learned over a long period of time to take anger and transform it into something, you know. It's not a good emotion if it just sits in you untransformed or unresolved. If you're uh, an accomplished organizer, the fact that you can take your anger and turn it into a, an excellent protest demonstration, that's, that's another way of doing it. But for me, it happens to be I can take the object of my anger or disdain or horror or revulsion and make fun of it. So, for example, my emotional state regarding the current occupant of the White House is very different from my wife's because she just has to live with it. The, the, <laughs> the daily dose of, what? Whereas I, <laughs> you know, I, I feed off it. Yeah, it's, um, she has music as an adult. Yes. I'm trying to process my own kind of simmering rage. I mean, the, the monster in the White House right now is something I can barely even look at out of the corner of my eye. You know, I was in junior high when the he took out the full-page ad demanding the execution of the Central Park Five, and mm -hmm, I've mm -hmm. basically never thought of him as anything but a monster. And I remember in the 2016, during the primaries, I was telling everyone who would listen, like, I had two pieces of hope. I, I thought the, the Republican apparatus would never let him get that far. I thought they would just... They would just rig it so he couldn't, like, win. And then on the Democratic side, I thought, well, as long as anybody but Hillary gets the nomination, they can defeat <laughs> him soundly. Hillary's the only person who could yeah. possibly lose to Trump. Well, yeah, they were the two most unpopular candidates in the history of American presidential campaigning, if you look at the polls. They both were monstrously unpopular yeah. overall in their general numbers. Well... All I can say about that, and this is not said in any diminution of any contempt or revulsion I have for this guy, is that George W. Bush killed a lot more people, got a lot more people killed, made a lot more mess in a lot more of the world, and his successor ignored his legal compulsion to punish torture. Yeah. No, it's... it's That's uh, a big red line for me. The silver lining on Trump is that he doesn't have the attention span for foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you can say the math has changed now because 
he's arguably responsible for more people dying than otherwise might have during the pandemic. So his his hands are no longer as they're all, they're still as small, but they're not as uh, unbloodied as they were before. So he's responsible for more Americans dying than foreigners. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. Um, and on that note, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and I hope this episode brings big charity to the attention of, of a lot more people. Me too. Uh, both as a role model film and as a as a, a truly amazing experience, and and I consider it the the best movie about Katrina ever made. Yeah, and the worst ad for Rolex is ever made, <laughs> or maybe the most honest. Ooh, the demo is coming by my house right now. All right, I'm, I'm going to go cover it. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Anyway, thank you. Good luck out there. Thanks. Subscribe! Rate, review, tell your friends, etc.